Welcome to The Compass, a podcast ministry of Calvary Baptist Church of Fayetteville, Arkansas. We're thrilled that you've chosen to download and listen as we continue working our way through God's Word. Now, over these past several weeks, we've been looking at the book of Ephesians, and Pastor Kirk is continuing that today. Now, if you're looking for a church home, let me invite you to check out Calvary Baptist Church of Fayetteville. We're located at 1410 North Porter Road of Fayetteville, Arkansas. If you have any questions, you can always check out our web presence. We're at www.calvaryfayetteville.com, or you can even send us an email at info at calvaryfayetteville.com. If you have other questions, call us at 479-442-4634. Again, Pastor Kirk is continuing our series, From Rags to Riches, with a message entitled, Christ Makes All the Difference. From Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 22. Let's listen together. Christ makes all the difference. Now, before we read our text, if you'll remember, uh, earlier in chapter 2, where he starts off talking about how we are dead by reason of our trespasses and sins, but how that uh, God quickens us, makes us alive, and then we work on down to uh, verses 8 and 9, perhaps the best-known verses in this chapter where he says, For by grace you have been saved through faith and not of yourselves. Then last week we focused on chapter 10 uh, where he talks about the fact that we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. We are not saved by our works, but all those who are truly saved will show good works as a result. It is something that happens that flows out of our salvation rather than something that leads to salvation. So we talked about all that. And now we get to the second half of this chapter. And Paul is going to speak to these people. And he's going to do some explaining. Now, we said earlier in the chapter, that we, we talked about some of the different dimensions of salvation. Uh, identified by some prepositions, we said that we were saved from God's wrath. That's verses 1 through 3. That we are saved by God's grace. That's verse 4 and 5 that we are saved because of God's love, that's verses 4 and 5 as well, that we are saved for God's glory, that's verse 6 and 7. Well, we add another one to that today. We are saved into God's family, all right? You are saved into and unto something. You are not saved just to be delivered, and go your willy-nilly way, but in willy-nilly, that's Greek, by the way, but you are saved into something and unto something. Now, my number one granddaughter began the sixth grade last week, and I asked her, what is the very best thing about your first day in sixth grade? She said, Papa, I can go anywhere in the school I want to go, and I don't have to walk in a line ever again. She feels like she's been delivered, set free. Well, she'll find there are other constraints in life besides standing in line. But some people approach salvation the same way. I'm set free. Like a bird out of prison, the song says. And that is true. But understand this. You are set free, but you are saved unto something. And you are saved into something that has responsibilities and has a great deal of purpose for your life. You are saved into God's family, the church. Okay? So, with all that in mind, let's read our text beginning in verse 11. Therefore, remember... Paul says, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh call the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. 
For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. And he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Now Paul just doesn't waste any words, does he? In fact, he can pack into one long sentence enough doctrine to almost last you a lifetime. You may have, when I read those words and as you watched and read along in your Bibles, you may have thought, what all does this mean and what all is it saying to us? Well, sometimes it helps to kind of give um, the points of how Paul is building the argument for what he is teaching. He's very systematic. It's very legalese almost at times. I want to suggest to you, just to help you see this passage, if you underline or mark in your Bibles or circle words, if you will identify, if you will mark these words, it will be helpful to you. First of all, in verse 11, notice that he says, at one time, at one time, circle those three words or underline them. Therefore, remember that at one time. Then if you go down to verse 13, the first two words, but now, but now. And right off the bat, you see, he's referring back to at one time in the past, but then something is different now, but now. And then if you'll go down to verse 19, the first two words, so then, so then. At one time, verse 11, but now, verse 13, so then, verse 19. These are the three points of our message. We'll cover the first two points today, Lord willing, and then we'll cover the third point next week. Now, before we actually get into the outline and, and seek to break this down to, to make sense to us and, and to get what God has for us, I want you to notice that Paul begins this teaching with a call to remember. In fact, he's going to use that word remember twice in this text. He is calling them to think back. More than 20 times or so in his writings, Paul, in his letters to believers, urges them and calls them to remember. It is healthy to remember. He challenges us to remember where we came from to remember God's faithfulness through the years, and so on and so on. But it's very important that you and I distinguish and understand that when Paul calls us to remember, he is not calling us to regret. He is calling us to remember, but remember and regret are two different things. Paul does not call us to regret. His call to remember is not to try to cause us to wallow in our, the shame of the failures of the past. Do you have any of those? I've got lots of them. And when I remember and when I think back, there are times I am embarrassed, I'm ashamed, I just wish that it was different, I wish that I had been different, I wish that I had done different, but understand all of that is the work of Satan. 
to get us to live in shame, to live in, uh, in regret, to live in guilt of the past is not the work of the Lord. It's not the work of the Holy Spirit. If you've been saved, you need to remember that all that has been forgiven. It has been washed clean by the blood of Jesus Christ. It's not where you live any longer. And if you deliberately go back there and live in that place again, you are sinning against God. You are saying the blood of Jesus might be enough for you, Father, but it's not enough for me. You may have forgiven me, but I will never forgive myself. And understand, when you do that, you raise yourself up above God himself. If God has forgiven you, then you need to forgive yourself. And when God calls you through the Apostle Paul or someone else to remember, it is to remember not just where you were, but what the Lord has done for you in forgiving you of your sins. It is to remember how faithful God has been to you. It is always intended to turn our thoughts and hearts to God to turn our thoughts Godward. And so when Paul says here, therefore remember, he is trying to turn their thoughts Godward. He calls us to remember where we were so that we can rejoice in where we are. Amen? All right. I'm going to take that that you at least thought amen when I asked for that. Point number one, life without Christ. This is the at one time that he's referring to. When he says at one time in verse 11, he is going to be describing life without Christ. Now notice verse 11 and 12 again. Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh call the uncircumcision by that which is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Now let me take just a couple of moments to explain something the best I can without being too personal or indelicate or, or anything else. Paul is setting these remarks in the context of Jews and Gentiles. Now the Ephesians are almost exclusively Gentile believers. Perhaps there were some Jewish uh, Christians in that congregation as there were Jews wherever Paul went and preached the gospel even here in Ephesus but understand that by and large these are Gentile believers now in his writings you'll find quite often Paul is going to refer to Jews and Gentiles by the terms circumcised and uncircumcised now, I don't want to go into all the details. That's a recurring phraseology in the New Testament. If you don't know for sure what all that is, go home and look it up. But let me explain how it came to be and why he used those terms. If you remember, when God called Abram out of Ur of the Chaldees, out of paganism, out of idolatry, when he called Abram and gave him the name Abraham, he promised to make out of him a great nation of people. That his descendants would be like the sands of the sea, like the stars of the sky. We know that Abraham is who we identify as the father of the Hebrew people, of the Jewish people of the Jewish race. They were known as Jews. They were recognized as God's called out people. And in the context of Jews and Gentiles, there's only two kinds of people in the world. There are those who are born as a descendant of Abraham, and there's everybody else, okay? Jews and Gentiles. Also, God gave these people, God gave Abraham a mark in the flesh to identify 
who he was as a called out person. And this mark was not only to identify them of who they were, but also whose they were or who they belonged to. Now, it seems like a peculiar thing to you and me, maybe a bit embarrassing, but God required that all Jewish males be marked by the mark of circumcision taking place almost exclusively on the eighth day of the birth of a child. Now, that may seem weird and strange and unusual and peculiar and embarrassing to you, and this is about the most... Um, well, whatever statement I'm going to make, just keep this in mind. Every time a man performed his bodily functions, several times every day, understand he had a reminder of who he was and whose he was. It was a mark in his flesh. God did not require any kind of mark like this on part of Jewish women. They were included in the family of God's called out ones by their birth, by their connection to their fathers and their husbands. Now this physical identifier of circumcision symbolized not only their identity as sons and daughters of Abraham, but as beneficiaries of all the promises that God gave to Abraham as well. As time progressed, God gave these people His commandments. God gave these people His word. God gave this people His blessings. God gave this people the promise of a Messiah Redeemer. They were a special people. Those who were the circumcised. But through time, his people took for granted their physical birthright. And they began to be uh, neglectful of the spiritual realities and responsibilities that came with the promise, with the calling out. They became very presumptuous even and arrogant that just because of their physical birth, are just because of the mark of physical circumcision that this entitled them to all the blessings of God and they looked down on anyone that did not have this mark in their flesh that were not God's called out ones. They identified themselves as God's special people just because of a physical birth, just because of a, a fleshly mark and they did not think in terms of a new birth spiritually only who they were physically. Now Paul wrote about this in Romans chapter 9 where he contrasts those who had circumcision in the flesh and those who had circumcision of the heart. Now circumcision of the heart, is that something they did actually with a, with a knife or scalpel? No. It is the spiritual thing of what this was supposed to represent. And Paul said in Romans chapter 9 that there are many who were circumcised in the flesh, but they were not, and they are not, a part of God's true family. And there are those who don't have circumcision, circumcision in the flesh that are God's true family because they've been circumcised in the heart. They have the spiritual realities. For them, it's not by birth. For them, it's by the new birth, and it's by faith. Does that make a little bit of sense to you? Have you followed me so far? Because that's so important in what he's about to say right here. And he talks to these Ephesians by these terms. Uh, this was a revolutionary thought that he said in Romans chapter 9, that you could be born a Jew and not belong to God, but you can be born a Gentile and belong to God. 
That's a revolutionary thought. And keep in mind that these churches that Paul traveled and, and started and preached to, even as he is writing to these Ephesian believers now, actually not just the church at Ephesus, but this was a cyclical letter that circulated among several churches in what is now modern-day Turkey. And he's writing to them, and they're almost exclusively Gentiles. And this was a real point of confusion for the early Gentile believers. Do we really belong as the people of God? Or, as the Jews say, do we need to be physically circumcised and do we have to become proselyte Jews in order to enjoy God's blessings? How does all this work? Is the gospel a Jewish gospel? Was it an anti-Jewish teaching? Were both Jews and Gentiles in God's true church? What about the natural hostility between the two? And there was great hostility between Jews and Gentiles. Were they equals, or did one or the other hold a privileged position? Now listen to me, and listen very close. Here's an application point for you and me living today that think this is an argument 2,000 years old. It means nothing to us. It means everything to us. For we too today live in a very hostile environment that will be increasingly hostile as the days go forward there's a message in this that the church in America desperately needs today folks understand the gospel is the great levelizer of all people the gospel is the great levelizer of all people we are living in a racially sensitive and a politically charged environment. Black versus white. It's never been worse, even in the days of slavery, at least attitudinally. Democrat versus Republican. The haves versus the have-nots. Critical race theory. All of this dominates our society and it is tearing us apart. Never has there been a better opportunity for the people of God to show the difference that Christ makes. The gospel, though, levelizes all of us. All people are lost in their sins and separated from God. Amen? Some may be worse than others in their sinful behavior, but all are equally lost. All people are lost, separated from God. All people need a Savior. The good man needs a savior every bit as much as the Taliban or the bad man or any other person that you can think of. No one can save themselves. No one, by anything they do, can get one inch, one millimeter closer to God and heaven apart from Christ. There is only one gospel, not one for this group and one for this group and a different one for that group. There is only one gospel and there is only one Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you believe that? The gospel is the great levelizer. So as we work in these few minutes we have left through some of these verses... Keep in mind that they were about Jews and Gentiles, the circumcised and the uncircumcised, but the hostility of their time, as great as it was, is no different than the hostility of our time. We need this gospel message as much as anybody. And just as the gospel of Jesus Christ brought these people together, Jews and Gentiles, circumcised and uncircumcised, as one body in Christ, like our opening scripture today, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one body. Understand that just as the Lord did that in their time, the gospel can do that today. Now that's a lot of introductory remarks as we unpack these verses. Look at verse 12. 
we're focusing on what he said at one time remember and we are thinking back okay we are thinking back to where we've come from and he says five things about a person that is apart from Christ five things about a person who is without Jesus in this world and he is encouraging us to remember these look at verse 12 we were separated that at that time we were separated from Christ. That's the first thing. We were separated from Jesus. He wasn't in us. We were not in Him. We were separated from Him. He's going to describe that with two or three different words to help us understand all the scope of our separation from Christ, our separation from God. The word here means to be an alien from to be an alien, to be on a distinctly different footing, to be without the intervention of. We were without Christ, and we did not have Him to depend on to intervene for us. We were independent from Him. We were without Christ, and we were without Christ's help. Okay? We were without Christ. We were separated. Number two, we were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. Not only were we alienated from Christ, we were alienated from all the promises God gave to his called out people, the Jews. He promised them the word. He promised them his blessing. He promised them prosperity. He promised them a savior redeemer, but he had not promised that to us. We were separated from all of that. We were aliens. We were ex literally excluded from citizenship. We were strangers. We were outsiders. That's where we were without Christ. Do you remember what that was like for you? To be a stranger, to be separated, to be alienated. Number three, we were strangers to the covenants of promise. There were great promises given through the Old Testament scriptures. And we were strangers. We were foreigners. We were strange aliens. He's used three different words to describe the same predicament. To be an alien from, to be excluded from, to be a foreigner. To be a foreigner. You've heard the word xenophobia. Do you understand what that means? Xenophobia is a fear and a distrust of people different from yourself, sometimes even a hatred. Okay? That's what we were. This, this word here is where we get the word xenophobia. Okay? We were, we were so distant. We were strangers to the promises and blessings that God had promised to his people. Number four, we were without hope. Without any expectation that life could be better or that life eternal was attainable. No trust. No confidence. No security or guarantee from God or man. Remember that the very first verse in this chapter tells us we were dead because of our trespasses and sins. And so in that dead condition, we were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, from God's people, strangers to the covenants of promise and the word. We were without hope. Someone has said, man can live about 40 to 50 days without food. About three days without water. About eight minutes without air. But only for one second without hope. Only for one second without hope. And we were without hope in this world. Number five. He said we were without God in the world. In a world created by the creator God himself. Lovingly populated with everything needed for mankind to survive and thrive. And yet to be in his world without him. What a tragedy. 
Can you remember those days? I was nine years old when God saved me. I didn't understand all of this. I had not been a student of the Word. Basically, that night I was saved, it kind of boiled down to heaven or hell for me. And that's all I really understood. But I want you to know, even as a nine-year-old, not having done a lot of evil or bad things in the world, I was separated from Christ. I was an alien from the people of God, alienated from them. I was a stranger to the promises of God's Word. I had no hope in the world. And I was without God in the world. And you know what? It's possible that there's somebody like that in this very service right now. And that's not a criticism of you. It's just the reality of where we have all been or where we all are. You're either there or you were there earlier in your life. And Paul is calling on these people to remember. For them, it had not been a long memory because they hadn't been saved, most of them, but for a short time. They had never heard the gospel until a little while before this. And as Paul writes to them from prison in Rome, he is reminding them, do you remember where you came from? Do you remember what life was like at one time without Christ? Then in verse 13, he shifts to, but now. But now. And this is what Christ did. This is what Jesus has done to make all the difference. Verse 13 reads, But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. And he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near, for through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Now, in those first two verses, he reminded us of five things that were true when we were without Christ, before Christ. Now he tells us five things that are true that have changed now that we have come to know Christ. Now Christ has made these differences, these things. Let me list them out for you. Number one in verse 13, he said, he brought us near. He brought us near. That doesn't sound like a big deal. But I'm going to tell you, when God brings you near, it is a big deal. It's a really big deal. We were once strangers, aliens, exiled from, not citizens. But now we've had God bring us near. But listen, it's more than just being near, as great as that is. He didn't just say, scooch on over here a little closer to me. That's not what he did. The word here in the Greek means to come into existence. To come into existence. To be created. To be born. To arise. To be changed. To be converted. What is he talking about? He's talking about the new birth. He's talking about what he said back earlier when he said in Brown verse 4 that we have been quickened, we have been made alive. And Paul uses the words brought near. He brought us near. But what he's saying is he saved us. He raised us from the dead. We've experienced a new birth. We are alive for the first time in our lives. This is spiritual life. We were dead, but now we are alive. We have come into existence. And what we are as born-again people is something this world has never seen before. 
It's a whole new creation in Christ. We have been brought near. That's the first thing. But then the second thing, when he made us one with himself by bringing us near, verse 14 says, he made us one. Who is he talking about? What is he talking about here? He's talking about Jews and Gentiles that were once separated by a wall of hostility, by a wall of separation, by a wall of anger, separating east from west, north from south, God's people, from those who are not God's people. But when he brought us near, when he saved our souls, he tore down that wall of hostility and he made us one. Jews and Gentiles alike, those who have not had the circumcision of the flesh only, but those who have had the circumcision of the heart that God has given them the new birth. This is one new man in Christ. He's talking here when he says he made us one. It is by a union. He didn't just separate the wall. He made us one, one and the same, one in office and in standing, equivalent to each other. It's the very same word that is used by Jesus in Matthew 19 when he says a man and he cleaves to his wife and they become one flesh. That's what he is saying right here, that Jews and Gentiles. He's saying to Americans today, black and white. He's saying Republicans and Democrats. He's saying the haves and the have-nots. He's saying the conservatives and the liberals. He's saying the maskers and the non-maskers. He's saying the vaccinated and the unvaccinated, for God's sake. You are all made one in Christ Jesus. And to think down, or to look down, or to speak down, or to have hatred in your soul for somebody just because they don't agree with you about politics or whatever is a sin against God. And that kind of hostility, Jesus took the hostility away with his death on the cross. And if there is hostility in your heart, it is demonic, it is of the devil, and you need to confess it as a sin against God. He made us one. He created one new man. He reconciled us. He restored favor. That's what that means. To God through the cross. Number three. He gave us peace. That's verse 15. He gave us peace. And I think I may in the last two or three minutes just disturb your peace. And for that I apologize. It's just the truth. It's just the gospel. And the gospel has to be encountered and changed in every area of life. He gave us peace. That's unity, tranquility, blessing, and good. Do you remember the night before Jesus' crucifixion in the upper room? He was going to die on the cross the next day. But he's concerned about his disciples. And he says this in John 14. Verse 27, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. There's a lot of things to be troubled and afraid of today, are there not? A lot of things. A lot of things in our world. But guess what? Jesus said, if you have my peace, you have no reason to be afraid. You don't have to be afraid of the future. You don't have to be afraid of what might come. Your hearts don't have to be troubled. I'm dying for you in order to give you peace, in order to make peace possible. Now understand that God's peace is not just some kind of shaky ceasefire between people. It's not just some temporary cessation of hostilities. But the presence of Christ brings real peace. Notice how he describes the, his, this peace in these verses. In verse 14, it says, He himself, Jesus, is our peace. He is our peace. He is our peace. If you have him, 
you can have peace. If you don't have him, you will never have peace. He is our peace. Then in verse 15 it says, he makes peace. That's what verse 15 says. He makes peace. He is proactive in peacemaking. He is a peacemaker. Okay, he makes peace. And then in verse 17 it says, He came and he preached peace. So Jesus is our peace. He makes peace. He came and preached peace. And if you and I don't have peace, well, that's our fault. Amen? So what has Christ done? He brought us near. He made us alive. He made us one. He gave us peace. Number four, he reconciled us to God, verse 16. He reconciled us to God. Little did we understand that we were the enemies of God. We were the enemies of God. And we had not only a barrier between Jews and Gentiles, between us and others, there was a barrier between us and God. But he reconciled us to God. He restored us to favor with his sacrifice. I remember many years ago, as just a young person, hearing an evangelist explain it with this word picture. He said, in the Garden of Eden, where God and Adam had perfect harmony, there was a beautiful golden cord of relationship and fellowship that held them together. But when Adam sinned against God, that golden cord of relationship and fellowship was broken. It was severed. And man was alienated from God, just as Paul just explained it and described it in our first point. And he said, but when Jesus was hanging on the cross, as it were spiritually, he reached into heaven with one hand and took that end of that golden cord, and he reached down to man with the other hand and reached that golden cord that had now been tarnished and, and uh, tainted by sin. And with his death on the cross, he brought both ends of that cord together and tied it back together in a knot that would never be severed again because of his sacrifice for man's sin. Adam's and mine, and yours. So there is that golden cord of fellowship that's been restored. We have been reconciled to God. Listen to how Paul told the Romans this in Romans chapter 5. Listen very closely. This is verses 10 and 11 of Romans 5. While we were enemies, enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son. Much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. We have now been restored to God's favor. Paul says it this way to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 17 through 21. Listen very closely. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us. Now listen, he not only reconciled us to God, but he gave us, he entrusted to us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, what are we? We are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Child of God, listen to me. God has saved you and given you 
the ministry of reconciliation. That's your job in this world, to help people be reconciled to God, to be a peacemaker. Number five, he gave us access to the Father. Access to the Father. For more than 30 years, I have carried a card in my wallet. I am a member of Triple A. Now that's a big deal. Because of someone who's bad about locking their keys in their car, of driving too far on empty, and a host of other things that maybe I'm not responsible for, what an encouragement it is that all I have to do is pick up the phone and dial that number and they say, Hello, Mr. Shelton, how can we help you? Which means, how can we bail your behind out this time? That's what that means. That's what that means. And all I have to do is tell them what the problem is. And I don't have to get my hands dirty changing that tire. Triple A will come do that for me. They'll come with a gallon of gas that'll get me to that gas station. They'll come unlock my car so that I can get back in and, and have my keys again. Whatever the problem is, that AAA has been a lifesaver to me and to my wife and to my kids. I love my AAA card. But you know, I've got another AAA card that's even better. This word, access, to the Father means approach. Access and admission. Approach, access, and admission. He has given us access and an approach and admission to God the Father. You didn't have that before. When you were lost, you could pray all you want to, but your prayers were basically no good ineffective. You had no guarantee God would hear you. You had even less guarantee that God would move in your favor. Perhaps he graciously did, but it's not because you had the right to be there. It's not because you had the promised privilege of prayer. Until you became a child of God, you had no guarantee of access, of an approach, or of admission to the Father. But now you do, 24-7, all the time, any hour of the day, with any need. This access to God is through Jesus, and it is by the Holy Spirit. Now let me ask you something. How do you think that particular point what do you think that would have meant to these Gentile converts? Well, keep in mind that the circumcision, the Jewish people, remember that they had a temple. And God dwelt in that temple. Literally. God among His people. And Jewish men could enter into that temple. They could come freely. Why? Because they had access. They had an approach. They had admission. God had given that to them. But if you were a Gentile, there was a part outside the temple that was known as the court of the Gentiles. And no matter how far you traveled from Ephesus or anywhere else, that's as close as you could get. But now... The Apostle Paul says, through Christ, you are the same as the Jewish people as far as privilege. You are now his called out people. You have the privilege of going to God. And he's going to say a little bit later, not only is this a matter of a temple way over yonder way in Jerusalem, but he's going to say to these Gentiles, not only do you have access to the throne room of God, but keep this in mind, you have become a temple of God. And when you go to God, you go to a God who is living inside of you. The Holy Spirit dwells within you, and you are the temple of God. So, at one time, 
at one time in our life without Christ, we were separated from Christ. We were alienated from His people. We were strangers to the promises of His Word. We were without hope in the world. And we were without God in the world. But because of what Christ did, now we have been brought near, made alive. He made us one with each other as believers. He gave us peace. He reconciled us to God. And He gave us access, admission, and approach to the Father. In verse 19, He says, So then, and He begins to describe what we have become. But that is for another day. Amen? Would you bow your heads with me, please? Father, through your Son, Jesus Christ, and His sacrifice on the cross, you have made all the difference. It's like daylight and dark. A difference that could never be achieved or experienced or enjoyed by anything we could ever do. It's because of what Christ did. Thank you for making us alive and drawing us near and giving us all the promises of the Word. For giving us access to you that we can pray right now and talk to you just like I am right now. As our friend. As our master. As our only hope in life and death. Father, I pray that there's anyone in the sound of my voice today in this place that does not know this difference that Christ makes, that you would burden their hearts until they give their lives fully surrendered to you. And Father, for those of us who know you, help us to remember that not only have we been reconciled to you, restored to fellowship, but we are to be reconcilers and to have the ministry of reconciliation in this world. May we live in such a way in troubled times that others see what it means to truly be a Christian. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Our heart's desire is that you grow and understand the direction God has for you in your life. We hope that by listening today, you are one step closer to discovering that for yourself. If you live in Northwest Arkansas and are looking for a church to call your own, we invite you to reach out to us at Calvary as we study and serve together. We meet for worship at 1030 on Sunday mornings at 1410 North Porter Road in Fayetteville, Arkansas. If you wish to find out more information about Calvary Church or simply contact us, you can do that through our Facebook page or at calvaryfayetteville.com. Until next time, remember that God, His Word, and His people can provide direction for life.